Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The state Supreme Court approved a new congressional map this week. On today's show, we break down the redistricting process and where the new map goes from here. We also explore the recent expansion of the Denver Art Museum's Martin Building. It's Italian architect Gioponti's only completed building in North America. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. On Monday, the state Supreme Court approved a new congressional map, drawn for the first time by an independent commission instead of the state legislature. The map now heads to the Colorado Secretary of State and will be used in congressional elections for the next decade. For more on this, we are joined by T. Bo, who covers politics for the Colorado Sun. T, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, the Independent Commission approved the map on September 28th uh, with an 11-to-1 vote, then sent it to the state Supreme Court. Could you briefly recap the process of getting to that point? Yeah, so Colorado voters approved Amendment Y in 2018, which created this whole new process for congressional redistricting overseen by an independent commission. Before, the state legislature um, and, you know, the partisan actors in the state legislature drew the congressional map. So this year, this panel of 12 commissioners who were um, partly appointed, partly selected by lottery, and their staff were not only trying to figure out how to steer this process for the first time without a precedent for how to do so, but it was also kind of a crazy year to be doing this because of the coronavirus pandemic and um, you know, more than four months of delays to the 2020 census results that are used to draw this map. So, you know, the whole point of redistricting is to capture all the changes that have happened in the state over the past decade. So that data is pretty important. But when the commission convened early this summer, they were supposed to get that data in April and they ended up getting it in August. So they started their work this year without really knowing what that data would look like exactly. Um, but they forged ahead. You know, they held more than um, they held almost three dozen meetings across the state, virtually and in person. That was a lot of driving, a lot of you know setting up meeting rooms um, when a lot of venues were closed because of coronavirus. And when they finally got the data in mid-August, it was a mad scramble for staff and for the commissioners to process that data, turn it into stuff they could use, and then draw three different maps for the commission to look at. So immense commissioners and their staff had very little time to do a lot of work, um, you know, late night meetings on weekends. And also everyone, a lot of these people had full-time jobs and children that made it really hard to accomplish what they did. I mean, even in a non-pandemic year, it would have been a difficult process, but that, of course, compounded everything. Now, after the map was submitted to the state Supreme Court, there were several challenges made to it uh, by some Democrats and Latino groups. What were the issues with it? So the biggest challenges were focused on voting rights. The Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 um, prohibits drawing district lines in a way that would result in minority groups having less of a chance of electing their candidate of choice. That's known as vote dilution. So these groups were pointing to language in the state constitution 
that prohibits maps that dilute a group's electoral influence. So this language, the commission argued, this language is basically the same as the Federal Voting Rights Act, just restating existing law. But the Latino and Democratic advocacy groups argued that language goes further and requires additional steps to protect minority voters. So, for example, they alleged that some of the new districts um, in the congressional map would draw Latino voters into the same district as white voters who vote against Latino preferences. In other words, by drawing these two groups of voters together, you're canceling out the impact of Latino voters. So they argue that the state constitution protects voters from these sort of impacts in a way that the federal law does not. Okay. Did the Supreme Court respond to those concerns? Yeah, the court basically sided with the commission. They said that um, this language they were pointing to is basically a restating of federal law. So they found that the commission had followed the law and their constitutional mandates in drawing their map. All right. And I'm curious, were there concerns from Republicans or conservative groups to the map? Yeah, overall, um, conservative groups didn't really file many challenges. There was at least one former Republican candidate from Jefferson County who filed an objection arguing that the um, 7th Congressional District wasn't competitive enough. And he also objected to um, splitting Jefferson County. But the court also found that even if the commission could have made different choices, they basically acted within their authority and criteria set out in the Constitution. We're speaking with T. Vo, a reporter with the Colorado Sun. Coming back to the map, uh, Colorado now has an additional congressional district thanks to lots of population growth over the last few years. Um, where does this new 8th district lie and how competitive is it? Yeah, so this new district captures an area with a lot of growth. Um, That would be the North Denver suburbs in cities like Thornton, Commerce City, Brighton, North Glen, Westminster, all of Greeley. Um, And it'll be 38.5% Hispanic. And Democrats have a very slight advantage, but it's a really competitive district, the most competitive district in this congressional map. So it'll be pretty interesting to see how 2022 shakes out because it's an opportunity um, that could entice a lot of Republican challengers and could also represent an opportunity for um, the state's Latino population, now almost a quarter of the state, to um, finally have representation in the congressional delegation. Sure. Other notable changes to the other districts that we should be aware of? For the most part, the maps don't have huge changes, at least ones that um, would make it difficult for some of the existing incumbent uh, members of Congress. Lauren Boebert's district, um, that's the third congressional district, continues to have a Republican advantage. I think some of the biggest changes are in the seventh district, which used to be just Chafee Park, Fremont Teller, and El Paso counties. But now it's um, minus El Paso, includes much of urban urban Jefferson County. Um, But that district, which um, would be home to Ed Perlmutter from Arvada, would still favor Democrats by about seven points. So that bodes well for him. What was interesting is the Colorado Supreme Court gave unanimous approval to this map. Uh, Justice Monica Marquez called it a watershed moment in the court's written decision. Can you put that into context for us? How significant is this? Yeah, I think regardless of how you feel about the map, um, this is the very first time the state of Colorado is using uh, process overseen by this independent commission. And so it's really an accomplishment that they managed to get it done. Um, If you look back at the beginning of the year, um, there was so much uncertainty about when we would get the data, how this new commission would handle things. There was no rule book. Um, And so just from that standpoint, Nobody knew how this year would unfold. And here we are with the congressional map drawn by this whole new process and a year of unprecedented challenges. 
Well, the state Supreme Court is now reviewing the state's new legislative districts. Um, they have until November 15th to rule on those boundaries. Uh, were we expecting that to be approved as well? Yeah. So, you know, we have yet to see it. We never um, want to prognosticate on what the Supreme Court's going to do. But I think a lot of observers were waiting to see how the court would rule on the congressional map, specifically the Voting Rights Act challenges. And now with that set aside, um, a lot of people are breathing a sigh of relief. And what happens next with the congressional district map? I know it goes to the Secretary of State, but kind of what, what happens now? Yeah, so the Secretary of State has very tedious process ahead of it um, of basically redrawing all the precinct lines to match this new map. Um, that'll take a while, but it's good. There were originally a lot of concerns from the Secretary of State that if a map didn't get approved for whatever reason by the end of the year, that they wouldn't have time to keep the election schedule. Um, and that's the process of like drawing the precinct lines, allowing um, each party to hold their caucuses and nominate candidates. Um, but now with the approval of the maps, they can go ahead and do that, redraw the lines, um, approve all the new maps, and then let um, each county go about the process of um, getting the election ready for next year. Tivo is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to her work at our website, KUNC.org. T, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Super Bowl 50's most valuable player, Von Miller, is no longer a Denver Bronco. Miller was traded this week to the Los Angeles Rams for a pair of second-day draft picks after a storied stay in the Mile High City. And earlier this year, Colorado sports fans suffered another loss of a star player when the Colorado Rockies traded away fan favorite Nolan Arenado. The third baseman went to the St. Louis Cardinals. The move did not sit well in many Colorado sports circles and was somewhat emblematic of the Rockies' season overall. The team finished with 74 wins and 87 losses. Their performance certainly wasn't enough to land them a berth in the World Series, which is being played now between Atlanta and Houston. But back in early October, we introduced you to another Rockies fan favorite who is unlikely to be traded away, Usher Mary O'Dell. The 84-year-old Fort Collins resident is quite possibly the most popular usher in the ballpark's history. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber has this profile. It's a Tuesday night at the end of September, and at Coors Field in Denver, a handful of Rockies fans are making their way to their seats. Granted, this game is kind of meaningless. The Rockies, a fourth-place team, are facing off against the Nationals, a fifth-place team. Neither is bound for the playoffs. But despite a lackluster end of the season, Coors Field sections 125 and 126 are packed with fans. That's because many of them didn't really come out to watch the Rockies play. A lot of them came for Mary. Mary O'Dell is an usher, and at 84 years old, the Fort Collins resident is the longest serving one at the stadium. So it's no surprise that she's got some fans of her own. A big part of the reason we come to the Rockies games is to see Mary all the time because she cheers us up and it's great to see her. She's always like smiley and friendly to all of us and fun presence to be around. We've got the best section because Mary's our usher. But despite her reputation as a larger-than-life usher and dedicated baseball fan, 
Mary wasn't always this way. When I grew up, I was very shy. I was a skinny, shy little girl with long red hair, and I had a lot of freckles, and I just was a shy little girl. And then as I got older, I just blossomed into something else. Mary was raised in an isolated rural area, which is why now she loves having a job where she gets to interact with people every day. I grew up on a farm in upstate New York near Syracuse as a poor farmer's daughter. And we didn't have anything, and I milked cows by hand and made all of my own. Um, I had to make all the um, butter and uh, all homemade bread, and we lived off on the farm. We didn't go to the store for anything. We were very, very poor. But I think when you grow up as being poor, you have good values. And values are people that are loving and caring. And that's what I like in my people I have. Not everybody is like that, but most everybody is. Mary is the only surviving member of eight siblings. She has two children and another daughter who passed away in 2002, six grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. But at Coors Field, her family is even larger. Oh my gosh, she's one of the reasons we look forward to coming to these games. Dina Martin has been a regular in Mary's section for about 10 years. She's the first thing you see, and she's always happy, she's excited, and she is a fan through and through, and it, it's contagious. And I have never seen anything anywhere like, you know, how people greet Mary and how she greets people. There is not a stranger to Mary. She treats everyone amazing, and she's just, she's just unbelievable. We're so lucky to have her. You know, baseball, apple pie, and Mary. Dina's husband, Bob. She, she runs a tight ship. That's what I like. We, we've been to other ballparks, and... You know, people come and go up and down the aisles, and it's kind of annoying. Mary, she takes care of us. We like it. <laughs> Mary knows the impact she has on her fans, which is why she plans to stick around for as long as possible. How long do you plan to stay working at Coors Field? Until I'm 100, I'm going to outlive Dick Montford. Uh, this is Dick Montford. I'm uh, one of the owners of the Rockies. The Montford family is actually the main reason Mary is here today. After 16 years working as a meat packer for the Monfort Company in Greeley, Mary was laid off in 1998. Dick Monfort's brother Charlie encouraged her to apply to Coors Field, where she's worked ever since. She's, you know, she's a cornerstone of all our ushers and the people that work here. And, oh, I mean, I, she's friendly, always bubbly, has got a good personality, and I think people just uh, migrate to her and a lot of like being around her. Mary said she's uh, planning to outlive you and work here until she's 100. What do you think about that? I think it'd be great. And I don't think she'll have much problem outliving me. At the end of the game, fans lined up in front of Mary once again. Not to get their tickets checked, but to get their hugs. You'd be good. I'm getting a second hug. Second hugs. You take two? Oh, my God, Mary, please. <laughs> Mary, thank you. You're the best. But of course, these goodbyes aren't forever. Mary's only 84, and remember, she's not retiring until she's 100. That's 16 more years to go. That was KUNC's Alana Schreiber. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last month, the Denver Art Museum reopened part of its campus that has been in the works for years, the Martin Building. It was originally opened in 1971 and was designed by Italian architect Gioponti. 
In total, the expansion project came in around $150 million. Beyond a facade facelift, though, the museum says that even the curation has been reimagined, with a commitment to inclusion in the Martin Building galleries. For more on the project and the museum's commitment to inclusion, we're joined by Andrea Fulton, Chief Strategy Officer and Deputy Director for the Denver Art Museum. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Martin Building opened to the public for a free visitation day on October 24th. I'm wondering, what has the reception been like so far? It's been really wonderful. I mean, first of all, just to see those spaces full of people again after four years of being under construction is, is pretty amazing. But the best part, I think, is people who, who even know that building very well or who have spent many, many visits in it feel like it's a brand new building. It There's nothing that seems old about it. There's nothing that seems... Um, overly familiar about it. And so it's a new discovery for everyone. Now, this was a very long time in the making. What does it feel like to be, you know, at the end of this project? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it, I was really lucky to to be able to run that project for the museum side, the construction and design. And um, so it has been a long time coming, but it's just the best feeling to see it finally come to life. Yeah, I can imagine. And to see people walking through and enjoying it. Exactly. Can you tell us about what visitors can expect now, knowing, you know, the opening is here and it's exciting, but we are still in a pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. So the good news about the museum is that we have a huge amount of space. You know, there's over 300,000 square feet of public space in, in the campus. And so there's lots of room to spread out for people. Um, the other thing that's important for people to know who are still hesitant about going out into public venues is we have a really safe environment. We have really clean air, which is required for art. And it just so happens that it's really good for visitors too. So we feel like um, that's lucky for us and that we can create a pretty safe environment for visitors. But in terms of um, what to expect, you know, I think it's, it's kind of business as usual for the museum. We're pacing people in in a way that hopefully makes people feel safe. And there's lots of different ways to get around and explore um, so that you can have some of your own uh, your own circle of space if you're not su- super comfortable with people. Sure. Well, the Denver Art Museum um, has said that the Martin Building's galleries have been updated with a commitment to inclusion. I'm wondering what that means and what, what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is many, many different voices and perspectives in the galleries. You know, art museums historically were sort of a, a curatorial viewpoint telling visitors how to interpret art. And I think that's evolved significantly over time. And I think the Denver Art Museum took a really big leap forward. Um, We've always been a leader in that area, but the way we approached these galleries and, and what's on view and the stories that are being told was really about presenting multiple versions of those stories that maybe we've heard over generations and, and now need to be updated and need to be told from a different viewpoint. So, you know, for instance, our um, Indigenous Arts of North America floor, which is the third floor of the museum, that is the product of huge amounts of collaboration with our Indigenous Advisory Committee, lots of artists from um, different tribal communities who have helped um, create the content for those floors and really shared their individual perspectives um, so that visitors can learn uh, from all different viewpoints. It sounds like there was a lot of thought put into it. Is it very different from what visitors would have seen previously in the Martin Building? It's still gorgeous galleries, you know, hung beautifully and immersive. But I do think that 
you know, we hadn't updated most of those spaces in quite some time. And we learned a lot with the Hamilton building, which is the building across 13th that we host most of our traveling exhibitions and we'll continue to host most of our traveling exhibitions. in. And when you do those rotating exhibitions, you have a chance to constantly evolve how you create presentation and how people immerse themselves in the experience. And so we were able to pull so many of those lessons that we've learned over the last decade or so in that building in those programs and bring them into every corner of the Martin building. So while it will still, you'll still see some of your favorites, you know, some of those artworks that you've loved since you were a kid, maybe, but they're, they may be presented in a whole new way. Does it feel that uh, the Denver Art Museum's movement in this direction is part of a larger trend in the world of art to address inequities? I certainly hope so. I think arts and culture and museums in particular have an incredible opportunity, but also a responsibility to help lead the way in terms of um, shedding some light on, on some of the things that are going on in our society. Art tends to be a reflection of society, and it's often a place where people who have traditionally not had a voice can communicate, can have a voice through creative expression. And so museums have always been a place where people can tell their stories and have a platform. And so I think more than ever, it's the responsibility of museums, but also um, such a such an amazing gift to have the opportunity to help lead the way on that. We're speaking with Andrea Fulton, Chief Strategy Officer and Deputy Director for the Denver Art Museum. I want to talk about the building itself a bit. Uh, much has been made about the design and the architecture of the building and the museum in general. Can you explain why the design of a building matters? Why is that so important? Well, you know, we used to talk about this building, um, which was previously called the North Building, and now we call it the Martin Building, as the largest object in our collection. So architecture is an incredibly impactful form of art. It's one that people see and experience every day. And design can change your mood. It can change the way you interface with people, with your work, with your learning, with your city. And so it's an incredible, powerful art form. And so for us, you know, we had the task of both preserving this architectural masterpiece, which sort of um, has been an icon for Denver, for a long time, it was a pretty ambitious building for Denver to, to start to build in the 1960s. Um, and so it's iconic in a lot of ways. It's the only building by Gio Ponti in this country. And so it was a, it was a huge um, priority for us to preserve that building and to really make it shine, but to bring it up to 21st century standards. But then we also had the task of trying to connect the two major buildings on the campus. And that's where the Welcome Center came into play. So what is ahead for the Denver Art Museum? I mean, I can't imagine you would be eager to take on any other major renovation projects in the next few weeks, um, but I don't know. Probably not. I think we have a lot of space to grow into and a full campus to evolve into. But I think the best part of a project like this is when you start to see how the community uses it. And part of the plan for this renovation was to create spaces that really were for the community. It was really um, meant to be a hub for people to gather, create, connect. And I think especially post-pandemic, that's really important. I think we recognize so much more the importance of that shared experience. And so now we have all these spaces, we have all these experiences and we can do our very best to plan and, and, and maybe set expectations for how we think people are going to interact with it but you really never know until your community is there. And so I think the next big evolution is still ahead of us. 
And I noted uh, that there's a, a restaurant. Is that new or is it kind of a renovation of an existing restaurant? It's a brand new restaurant. So we actually, um, there was a small building um, sort of on the front of this of this north building that housed a restaurant. And we actually um, demolished that building and built a brand new 50,000 square foot welcome center in its place. And it includes two food um, establishments. It has a cafe, which is a coffee shop and quick service um, restaurant. And then we have a sit-down restaurant called The Ponte, which the menu was designed by Chef Jennifer Jasinski, who's very well known in our state. She has some great restaurants around town. Um, And so it's a brand new restaurant. Hmm. Well, you know, when you need people to gather, I mean, food is essential, at least for my family. Mine too, absolutely. Well, let me wrap up by just asking what you see as the future of art in Colorado and how people will enjoy and experience it. Well, I think Colorado is a fabulous place for art. I mean, it always ranks in some of the most engaged citizens in arts and culture in the country. And I think we're just scratching the surface. I think there's so much more um, to, to build upon. I think there's so much potential to positively impact every aspect of the community. And I think the new ways of thinking about art and culture are about how it impacts our health and our well-being as both individuals and communities um, through shared experience, through being creative, experiencing and finding your own creative voice, but also our economy, things like job creation and cultural tourism. I think arts has a the potential to touch every aspect of the state and play a really important role in those communities. Andrea Fulton, Chief Strategy Officer and Deputy Director for the Denver Art Museum. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll break down some of the Election Day results and what they mean. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.